Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Yaniv Tal, co-founder of The Graph. Before we dive in, I am very excited to announce that Unstoppable Domains is now integrated with The Graph, which basically means that it is now easier for app developers to build Web3 apps with .crypto domains. Um, and, and so this is very exciting stuff, and I'm going to bring Yaniv on to dive a little bit deeper into that and explain just what that means to all of you. So, hey, Yaniv, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Anna. Great, great to be with y'all. All right. So before we dive into the graph, I want to know a little bit more about your personal background and how you got into crypto. So take me all the way back to when you first got exposed to crypto and what was it about crypto that got you interested? I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011. At the time, you know, this was after the Great Recession. I was just getting out of college and thinking a lot about uh, the economy and, uh, you know, how people get jobs and just kind of the global financial system and, uh, you know, lots of these kinds of things. But it wasn't until I came across Ethereum in 2017 that I, I really kind of dove in. Throughout you know 2012 2013, Bitcoin and, and crypto um, got got to my awareness again. For me, it was really the idea of building not just decentralized applications, but decentralized protocols that could help uh, change how people cooperate and organize. That really got me to want to to focus in the space full time, and it's, it's it was really that programmability around Ethereum. Where really, you know, um, there's no limit to the types of things that you can build to help people find new ways of uh, coordinating. For sure. And what were some of the best ways for you to learn more about the space? I know a lot of people that are just diving into Ethereum or blockchain or crypto in general. It's it's a tough concept to wrap your mind around. What did you find to be the best way to learn more? And do you have any go to sources that you would recommend other people to look at and follow? I think a lot of my learning in the early days was from reading blogs and just uh, chatting with people in person. I was in San Francisco and I started just going to events and drink ups and these kinds of things. And they're incredibly, you know, smart people in the space that sometimes just, you know, talking to folks, you can really learn a lot. Other than that, you know, I think uh, most people are on crypto Twitter. So, you know, that's that's kind of the always on uh, thought stream. But yeah, no, no real shortage of, of materials. I think just follow your curiosity. For sure. And what would you say are some of the biggest obstacles to widespread adoption of crypto and blockchain technology right now? Well, to be honest, I mean, I think we've come a really long way, but I think 
the Web3 stack is is still not finished getting built. You know, if, if we think about it like, you know, as, as a platform, like say, you know, the iPhone and iOS as a platform or, or the web was a platform, uh, you do need to get to, to a certain kind of bar before you're really ready for like a, a full on mainstream audience. And I think, uh, you know, crypto is weird because, you know, it's not one company. It's not like a, a product manager that kind of owns it. So, you know, you kind of get all of these components getting released, you know, on their own cadence. So, you know, imagine with a, a smartphone, if like the screen came out and then the touch uh, screen component came out and all of these pieces one at a time. So each one you can play with, you can see like, oh, wow, this is really cool. But it's not really until you can put it all together that you really get the full picture and that um, it really becomes something that anybody can use. A lot of the building blocks have come out. You know, things in DeFi, I think, are getting really usable. Um, so, you know, I, I use my, you know, Ethereum wallets and it's better than a bank. Using that, you know, even to manage like company finances um, with multi-sigs is, is better than a bank. So a lot of these things, I think, are already kind of getting there. Web3 as a whole, I think um, there is more and it's 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 fairly it's a combination of, of technical things, you know, in these protocols, ways of integrating these protocols and also design patterns that I think are still kind of getting flushed out, but are going to like compose together into a greater whole that um, becomes something that anybody can interact with. That's a great analogy with the iPhone. I think that really illustrates just how sort of still, you know, early days and fragmented things are in the Web3 space and how much room we have to grow. Let's move on and talk a little bit more about the graph. So for people who aren't familiar with the graph, tell us about, you know, how, how was the inception story of the graph? Why did you create the company? What problem were you solving? How'd you get the idea for uh, for something like this? Yeah, funny enough, I had kind of a precursor to the idea of the graph closer to, I guess it would have been 2016, before I even dove into Ethereum, uh, just working on developer tools, React and, and GraphQL. If your listeners are familiar with GraphQL, it's a query language from Facebook that has really taken over the web. It makes it really easy to query for whatever data you want, and it's, it's a way of defining these APIs so you can get data from servers. And with GraphQL, you can um, you have these schemas which define the shape of the data and you can define the relationships between different types of data and you can seamlessly traverse across you know, this graph. It seemed to me already at the time that the end state for this would be basically a global graph, right? All data is relational, it's all linked. And so you actually um, wanna like link all of the data. But then, you know, that idea was immediately stopped when, you know, uh, the, the natural next question is like, well, who's going to like run this global API? Um, like that's that's too much power for any one company to have. Like developers wouldn't trust, like even if Google or Facebook or any of these companies had like the global API, like, is that what we want? Of course not. And so that, that was just like an initial thought. And it wasn't um, much later that I kind of, you know, put more pieces together. So when I started um, diving into an Ethereum in 2017, we started building decentralized applications. And there was this idea of like serverless applications. You know, these things are truly decentralized. They're not running on anyone's like um, computers instead. They're, well, they're on like a, a, a decentralized network that nobody controls. And when we started building these dApps, we realized that you actually couldn't build such a thing. 
you know, it turns out that, uh, you know, the infrastructure was still pretty immature, you could deploy your smart contracts on Ethereum, um, and that was decentralized. But if you wanted to build a, a product on top of that, something that loads quickly, you actually had to like still run your own servers. You know, the big part that was missing there was the indexing where you're ingesting data from the contracts or from other networks like IPFS and then indexing it so that it's efficient to query so you can build these like products and user interfaces on top. And that was currently the place where a lot of the development was getting centralized. And so um, we decided to build the graph uh, to make it really easy for developers to, you know, index this data, but uh, do it in a way that can run on a decentralized network so that the full stack can be decentralized. So internally ourselves, the graph builds itself as an index indexing protocol for querying decentralized networks. I, I mean, I'm sure you have a different way that you do it. As a developer, it's just super hard to do lookups across a lot of different decentralized networks, meaning like there's a lot of infrastructure that you'd have to run in, in order to do that. It's basically why Infura exists. And for people who don't know, Infura is used by uh, people to do lookups on Ethereum very easily. And there are centralized servers that provides this. And like the graph is kind of like meta Infura. Now I'm sure I'm butchering it and you can correct me on this. Uh, but it's like just a allows me to do super easy queries across, you know, any number of networks and in fact unlimited because people can just spin up whatever it is that I'm looking for. If they're if they're if I'm willing to pay for it, someone may provide that service. It's a lot easier to run a query because it uh, using GraphQL uh, than it is to you know do a blockchain call. And these blockchain calls also take a very long time, right? And there's all sorts of problems around this that you guys just make it super easy for developers to get into. And then I guess one other piece that I like to say uh, to developers is that you know the value of the data increases as you go up the stack and there's like raw data storage and that's just like throwing data onto a hard disk somewhere. You know, that's great that you have that, but it's not super valuable. But turning that into something that's easy to interface with where I can query it, which is essentially what the graph is doing, that's where all the value add is in the service layer. So we love we love it. And I'm saying that as somebody, we use the graph. So that's why I'm excited to, um, you know, see this continue to evolve. And I think it's super important, like you said, because we don't want just one company to be involved with controlling uh, access to this data. So that leads me to my next question. You know, how does this work, right? How, how does the node network work for the graph? Uh, can anyone run a node and what do they need to do to do it? And I think that this is probably the piece that's different uh, that from like just, you know, asking Microsoft or Amazon for an answer. Absolutely. So th there's quite a few components to, to the graph network, but it all starts with the subgraph which is kind of the, the core unit in the graph. And you can think of a subgraph as an open API, uh, but it's basically an individual like GraphQL API, which defines um, how to ingest, process, index, and then serve some subset of data. Developers have been building these subgraphs, um, which you know, is a thing that, that we invented uh, in, in 2018. Up until uh, recently, they've been uh, running those on our hosted service, which the initial team you know, built and launched just to make it easier for developers to, um, to build on the graph while we were getting like, the full decentralized network ready. But the subgraphs are the core abstractions, and you know, a subgraph has uh, you know, an, an ID that uniquely defines it. They can be versioned, and um, given a subgraph, uh, you can run a query as of a block, let's say, on, on a network like Ethereum, and there's one and only one correct response to that query. And that's a really important thing that's core to um, 
you know, the design of the graph is that everything is deterministic. So given one of these descriptions of this is how the data should be organized, this is how it should be indexed, here are the different data sources that I want to subscribe to. All of that then data processing, right, the ingestion, the processing, the indexing, and the serving is all deterministic based on that subgraph definition. Um, so once you've defined a subgraph, which is very flexible and ex, you know expressive, so developers can can do all kinds of like custom data manipulation processing inside of those subgraphs. Then uh, the question is, where does this thing run, right? And as I mentioned up until now, it's it's been run on our hosted service. Uh, but in December last year, we launched our decentralized network, and on the decentralized network, um, these uh, subgraphs are essentially run by these indexers, which are third-party node operators that are running the servers um, that are you know, processing all of this data and, and serving the queries. Anyone can become an indexer. Uh, there is a minimum stake in the network that's currently set at 100K GRT. Uh, but if you, um, you know, stake that 100K GRT, you can register your service endpoint and uh, become an indexer in the network. And these indexers can choose which subgraphs they want to index. There's uh, thousands of subgraphs have been built uh, as an index. You don't have to index all of the data on the graph. You can choose which subgraphs you want to index, and then you can set your prices granularly per query. And this is a, a really cool thing that we've built, which enables a really dynamic query marketplace to develop where there's an incentive for these indexers to optimize access to data. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where, you know, if you're using a centralized service or, you know, if it's even something that you've built and the app developers want to like run some like super complex query that takes like 30 seconds or like a minute or more sometimes even to load, usually you have to go like, you know, find the engineer who's going to figure out how to like, you know, run, make this thing run faster. And on the graph network, you know, it's just built into this dynamic query marketplace where there's uh, an inherent incentive for indexers to go in, you know, optimize, find, find what are those slow queries and then just make them run faster. And they can actually make money um, by doing that. They can charge more for those more expensive queries. So for ensuring the validity of the data, like you want to make sure that you know, I'm querying a blockchain network. I want to make sure that the data is accurate. So you're saying two things. I think one was that you guaranteed the validity of the data at a given point in time. So like, uh, so time to lives are going to be a thing. You're going to need to know the time period where you want to have the data to be accurate. But then you also said that are there slashing penalties, I guess? That's why people are staking. Um, so what's the assurances around data validity, I guess, is the, is the question. The network is secured with crypto economics um, at this stage with the B1. And all of the indexers are bonded with their stake. Every time they serve a query response, uh, it comes with a signed attestation. And that signed attestation can be used to submit a dispute against uh, the indexer. And that dispute is resolved by an arbitrator. That's a role that's set through decentralized governance. And um, the arbitrator is able to um, adjudicate on that dispute. And there's uh, an arbitration charter that right now is actually uh, working its way through the governance process that kind of outlines all of the rules that uh, the arbitrator may use um, to adjudicate these disputes. And so all of that creates a, a very strong incentive for indexers to, you know, return the correct data because if they serve, you know, if they sign an attestation with an incorrect query response, they'll essentially be taken to court and, uh, and lose their stake. So I think this is interesting because a lot of the people of our listeners are 
uh, just getting into the space and this is new. And I actually think that what you're describing here is going to just become much, much, much more common over the next decade. And you're going to have these systems where they have these crypto economic incentives. And to make that simple, it's, it's basically just kind of like insurance with some sort of arbitration process for the query lookup. Would you say that like that's a reasonable way to describe it? And then as far as the safety of the protocol for the graph, have you guys had slashing incidents uh, so far? I'm actually just kind of curious. Um, you know, have you experienced those to date? What have been the biggest or smallest ones? And then, like, uh, how hard would it be for someone to compromise the protocol? Do you need one third of the network, two thirds? Again, I think this is very interesting for people at home because uh, <laughs> this is going to be the new way that people attest to validity of data. And I think it's super interesting. The first several months of this year have been spent mostly like bootstrapping the supply side of the network. So we've been doing this kind of phased rollout where, you know, the network was was launched in live in December. Um, indexers have been like joining the network. So um, I, I believe we're at around uh, 170 uh, indexers on the network right now. Initially, there was just a single subgraph um, on the network and indexers were like, you know, we'd, we'd done a test net for six months previous to launching the network, but there's certain things that you only learn in a live environment. And so, you know, on mainnet, um, all of these indexers were indexing a single subgraph and really making sure that they understood how to like do all of these operations. There's a bunch of like mechanics in the protocol for how like the rewards are distributed out. Um, there's also a thing called like a, a proof of indexing that you need to submit regularly that shows that you're um, actually indexing the subgraphs and that's how you earn the indexing rewards. And so um, that whole process has taken us a few months and we announced uh, the whole kind of migration path to mainnet where, you know, we have, you know, thousands of developers, um, you know, with, with thousands of applications built on the graphs hosted service. And now we're kind of, you know, in the, the transition, in the process of transitioning those subgraphs over to the decentralized network. Um, so we're doing this in three phases. Uh, the first phase uh, we already did, which is uh, publishing the first set of subgraphs on the network. And so there's 10 uh, migration partners whose subgraphs have been deployed on, on the network. And so now the indexers are indexing those subgraphs in addition, and it, it has a big effect on the economics as well. And so there's a whole bunch of like learning uh, to make sure that um, they're being efficient and like choosing those subgraphs. And there's a bunch of kind of economic considerations. The phase two is production dApps, which is, um, you know, these, uh, migration partners actually going to production with their main applications on top of the decentralized network. That's coming up. That's the next milestone. And then the third is uh, Curation Live, where we're also going to be releasing a set of products that's basically the full self-service experience so that anyone can easily publish their own subgraphs onto the network and then um, curate on those subgraphs. Um, so that's that's another role that we haven't touched on yet. Um, but it's it's part of the um, incentives in the network is this role of curation, which is uh, the the folks that understand the subgraphs that are being deployed. Since anybody can build a subgraph, there's no um, way to necessarily know offhand which ones are actually high quality and are accurately like processing the data. And so um, curation is a way that um, 
folks can signal with GRT on subgraphs on a bonding curve to actually signal, hey, this is a high quality subgraph that you should use in your applications and that indexers should index. And that's a really core part of the full self-service experience where anybody can publish these subgraphs and then organize them. So that's the third phase. So, so far, um, actually, one of the biggest things that we've been working on as a community is actually all of these um, you know, nuances around things like slashing. You know, there are a lot of kind of edge cases. And, and these are things that, you know, w- one of the things that I've, I've realized having like launched this network is, you know, you have one thing in your like white papers, you know, you have another thing with your, you know, you've actually built like the smart contracts and like the protocols, uh, you know, defining code. And then it's it's another thing when it's out in, in the wild and people are using it and uh, and doing all kinds of, uh, you know, funky things. We've been very actively like working, you know, with the community and, and, and a lot of this stuff, you, you know, you can really only learn in a live environment. And so um, this is where like we're going through the arbitration charter, making sure that like all of the indexers and everybody's like 100 percent on board with, OK, these are the slashing conditions. These are the types of things that like, um, you know, shouldn't be slashable. And um, and, and we're kind of uh, um, working our way through all of that right now. So no slashing yet. <laughs> and sounds like we're sounds like we're still early days on uh, getting a lot of the systems in place, but it's good. I mean, you've got pretty good growth on network there. You mentioned some stats there. Is there a place where I can take a look at the analytics for uh, the graph network? Like as a developer, if I want to see, you know, how many nodes are running or is there like a dashboard on Dune or one of these other analytics platforms? Yeah, you can go to network.thegraph.com. And there you can see the, the high-level uh, network stats. Uh, there's 2.7 billion GRT staked in the network. You can see you know, uh, how many tokens have been paid out in indexing rewards, in query fees. And you can uh, look at the participants, uh, which has a list of all of the indexers. These are the ones that are currently allocating towards subgraphs. And you can see which subgraphs they're indexing. Yeah, I'm over here uh, checking it out now. Appreciate that. I think I've asked too many questions now. I'm going to pass it back over to Diana for a little bit here. Um, I got to dig in. I appreciate that. I was just enjoying the show. That was great. Um, so, Yaniv, I'm kind of curious about just like hearing you talk about like the queries and how the thinking more about how the business is set up. Is the business model sort of like the idea is that you would pay for the queries long term? Protocols are kind of a a new sort of business model altogether. And I think we are starting to understand better what these things look like. The GRT token is like a staking token, right? It's, uh, you can also call it a work token and and it's also a utility token. So uh, the indexers stake uh, GRT um, for economic security in the network. They charge query fees, which they set in uh, GRT as well and and they earn indexing rewards through new token issuance for just indexing the subgraph so their economics are a combination of those indexing rewards and the query fees that they set and i think that's very common and that allows you know the 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 protocol to basically incentivize things that are beneficial for the network as a whole as well as like monetizing things where there's like a single payer that's kind of deriving the benefit of the interaction, right? In a marketplace where there's like a, a consumer and a supplier. And so the consumer pays using uh, micropayments. You're, they're paying per query. That's going primarily to the indexers. And then we also have this 
Uh, we have the delegators and curators, which are two other roles in the network. Uh, the delegators help to secure the network by delegating stake to indexers, and then they earn a portion of, of uh, the, the indexers' income. And then um, the curators are signaling on those subgraphs, as, as we discussed, and they earn a cut of query fees. So this is kind of the economic system. You know, the initial team doesn't like see any of that revenue, right? Um, we just kind of helped to build the protocol. And it's really those um, core roles in the protocol that have this uh, economic game that they can play. I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the use cases that you've seen come to fruition from the graph. And so one thing actually is one of our features that we have at Unstoppable, the NFT gallery feature that was built using the graph. And so that's pretty cool. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, are there any other like cool features or products you can think of that were built using the graph? Or maybe like, what are some Web3 apps that you would like to see be built in the future using the graph? Yeah, there, there are a ton of really cool things getting built. You know, of course, DeFi is, is the area that, you know, um, everyone loves to talk about that's seen just a ton of traction. It's really exciting. And, uh, you know, we've got, you know, everyone from Uniswap to Synthetics, you know, Aave, Balancer, Enzyme, uh, you know, Mstable, uh, Uma, uh, Open. All of these uh, DeFi, you know, protocols are, are, you know, super exciting and, and you know, they're using the graph for, for their different applications. I think NFTs, you know, have kind of, you know, hit the world by storm. I actually first really got into NFTs um, when uh, Foundation, I guess, launched. I think it was maybe even before their like public launch, but they were building on the graph. And very early on, I I got super excited about it, right? Because I was like, here's a, a use case that is is really enabling creators to, you know, reach new markets and essentially like get paid to do what they love. And like, to me, there's nothing better than that. It's been really cool to see the growth of NFTs. And there are a bunch of NFT projects built on the graph, like uh, uh, you know, Zora and Foundation and, and Known Origin and others. Everything happening in governance is really interesting. So, you know, Moloch and Aragon and, and um, you know, those types of projects have been, uh, using the graph. And then, you know, Compound kind of came out with their standard governance contracts. And there have been a bunch of different like protocols that have used those standard contracts. And there, there are great apps like uh, Tally, which lets you uh, interact with these governance uh, contracts using the graph. You know, governance is, is one of the most interesting areas to focus on, in, in my view, uh, because it, it, it really is, in a sense, like kind of the the, the killer thing that um, you can do with protocols, which is essentially make decisions collectively, allocate resources, right? Distribute those resources out, enable large numbers of people to collaborate together on a shared goal. With the success of like an initial set of protocols, a lot of them in DeFi, now there are these like treasuries that have a lot of resources that they need to like distribute out. And so, um, you know, creating better applications that allows these protocols and communities to effectively make decisions and distribute those resources, I think, is, is a super exciting place to focus. Very cool. I didn't even realize that a lot of those companies or a lot of those projects were built with the graph things that I look at every single day. So that's very cool. Long term, you know, who are you picturing uh, as the target customer of the graph right now obviously it's just a developer tool it's i think it's is it safe to say it's only developers uh that are using it right now 
Yeah, I, I think uh, I mean there are a lot of end users that are using the you know DApps that are are built on the graph, um, but it is primarily developers that are like you know uh, interacting with the protocol directly. Um, well, since we launched the network, there are some more roles, right? Those delegators and, and curators um, can be much less technical. You know, you really don't have to be technical to be a delegator. You know, it's worth doing your research to kind of, you know, understand like who are these indexers that you're delegating to. But but other than that, you know, it's really something that anybody can do. But yeah, I think there are going to be like higher levels of um, abstraction on top of the graph that makes it a lot easier for people to uh, to collaborate and, and to kind of use the graph more directly. Right. Because because ultimately what we're trying to do is is organize all of the world's public information in a decentralized way. And that is something that, uh, you know, I think everybody is is going to interface with um, and kind of, you know, the same way that anybody can use spreadsheets. And that's, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, if you're a knowledge worker, you probably use a, a spreadsheet. I think there are going to be similar tools for crypto protocols. Um, that that make it a lot more accessible and and all and and I think it's important that these things are made more accessible because I think part of what we want to accomplish with Web three is um, to empower people um, and you know uh, not just people that are working in these like large tech companies in Silicon Valley but like everyone all over the world that they can directly impact the things around them that they care about and uh, and so yeah I think uh, the tools for organizing data, um, but in a decentralized way, you know, that needs to kind of be democratized. Yeah, I 100% agree. I was thinking that maybe you guys would be like the next no code of Web3, but Excel is taking it even a step further and really making it accessible to the masses. I'm excited for that. There are some really interesting things to do just in that direction generally, where, um, you know, I think there are going to be like new interfaces and things um, altogether. So I just threw out Excel as, as an example, but I think there's a, there's a big design space there. I had another crazy idea, and this is coming from our engineering team. And they're, they're, this is from the Ensemble Engineering Team. This is their question in here. So uh, would the graph potentially be interested in storing off-chain data uh, to help with roll-ups or other scaling solutions Because as a query network? And this is actually... Um, yeah, so if you you can ask me what you mean by that, but I'm sure you understand what I'm what I'm getting at there. Is this something you guys have thought about? Totally. So on, on the hosted service, uh, we already support networks like Polygon and uh, Phantom and uh, Binance Smart Chain and and a, and a bunch of these others. We're, we're definitely going to be active in layer two. So when we say off chain data, we you can also include data from like IPFS. The core requirement for the graph is, um, you know, we want to be indexing, right, net data from from every kind of crypto network. But the requirement is that we can get to consensus on that data, and so that's that's kind of the main requirement. Um, you could have a network that has a fewer number of nodes, but there's still a consensus, and you know that that could be kind of good enough. You still have to maybe decide like what do you do in the case where like the network gets attacked. And you have to, you know, decide like which fork is is the real network, and like so. There's like edge cases there to kind of deal with. In general, I think um, it's going to be a multi-blockchain world. Um, there's going to be like multiple layers, you know, layer twos, storage networks, all like lots of different types of networks, app chains, 
and, uh, and and definitely we want all of that data indexed on the graph. And specifically to rollups is what I think they're getting at. So there's a lot of people who think that rollups are going to be a big part of the future for scaling blockchains. And if you have a rollup, there's going to be some data that needs to be stored somewhere else. <laughs> and um, I was wondering if the, the graph is potentially looking at that for storing rollup data for uh, validity proofs, for instance, on ZK rollups or something like that. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the way that I think about our part of the stack is that, you know, we're not storage, but we are data access. And so all of the data that's indexed on the graph needs to be stored elsewhere. So, you know, that data could be on Filecoin or Arweave or, you know, any of these types of like storage networks for long term storage. But those might not be like the most efficient you know, ways to access the data. All of those things, you know, you want to think about both like where is it stored long term, but then for sure you want to build a subgraph for it and have it be indexed and you can just query that data directly from the graph. Hey, had to ask. I think it's interesting uh, and we'll see where all these query services fit in with the, you know, data storage and then, you know, helping with computation. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of ways that these things can hook together. I wanted to move on to maybe some questions for you, like personally, uh, on a personal level, like, do you happen to have a crypto punk, right? So I'm actually just kind of curious, are you in the NFT space? Do you play around with any of these assets personally? And uh, yeah, what, what are the things that you're, that you do uh, outside of the graph? I know you're probably working hundred hours a week. Yeah, I don't have any crypto punks. I feel kind of bummed about that because <laughs> I was I was noodling on it and I never I never did. But I do have um, some NFTs, um, and mostly it's just from artists that you know I either have a personal relationship with or I just really appreciate their art and I bought it kind of for 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 the art's sake. I'm still working on building the stuff that I want to use. <laughs> you know, use some of the DeFi stuff. But mostly, I think we're we're just in super early days, and so I'm I'm a lot more focused on uh, building new things. And then on the DeFi side, because I'm pretty much the same way. You know, you I'm at work a lot of the time, and I don't have enough time to play around with everything as I want. But there's some really cool things on DeFi. You mentioned earlier you're taking you know some loans or doing some things like that. Are you a you know like Make or Die user? Uh, and and then you know if you experimented with some of these uh, self-paying loans things, I'm actually just kind of curious. What are the things that you find yourself using on DeFi that are enough that are interesting enough today that that uh, you take the extra effort to go around and use? Yeah, I've definitely used like Maker CDPs. You know, I think it's it's really awesome once you realize that you can just like access US dollars. It's free money. Without... <laughs> it feels like it feels like free money for crypto people. I know it's dangerous to say that, but yeah, that's the feeling. Exactly. And, and then and then you have days like yesterday where people just get liquidated, you know, to the nines. So. <laughs> and then you got to be in the liquidity pool. So when people get liquidated, you also get you get more crypto. So yeah, it's all sorts of money games. Yeah, for, for me personally, you know, I, I try not to spend too much time thinking about money. You know, money is really just uh, a tool. I don't need a lot to kind of be comfortable and, and be happy. And so um, for me, I, you know, I try to, to kind of just focus on uh, on the building and that stuff is really cool. But um, I think we'll, we'll be able to, uh, you know, point all of that machinery towards productive use when we bring Web3 online and there's a lot more economic activity that you can kind of integrate and, and, and use these kind of really powerful DeFi building blocks, um, you know, to, to power. 
Well, Yaniv, I have uh, some more theoretical or philosophical questions for you too regarding Web3 and decentralization. For people listening who maybe are developers in the Web2 world or really just anybody in the Web2 world who hasn't really gotten exposed to Web3 yet, like why is decentralization and Web3 so important? And then how is Web3 going to transform pretty much every aspect of our lives, the way that we organize the systems that we've grown so accustomed to. Give us like your pitch as to why Web3 is so important and everybody should be paying attention. Yeah, well, you know, the the, the web is, is fundamentally broken. More and more decisions are being made by fewer and fewer people, right, at these kind of large tech companies. It's not just the web. The internet kind of started something in motion um, where, you know, it, it really is just kind of the fundamental technology of our times, right? The same way that we built out like, you know, all of the, the world's current institutions around like the industrial age based on the technology that was available at that time. And, and really it all just, you know, needs to, to change. You know, the internet changed everything, but, but the institutions that we use to coordinate society are still industrial age institutions. And that's everything from like, you know, universities to these like large multinational corporations and banks and even governments. And so in the the internet age, the game is going to change. We should no longer be playing these kind of, um, you know, corporate ladder sorts of games, right? Like the, the stuff that we were raised and we were like taught that like, this is how you play the game, right? You go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, you get good grades, you like start an entry level job, you work your way up the corporate ladder, like that whole thing. I think like everybody just feels that like there's something wrong about that. And maybe we just can't like quite put our finger on it yet because it's not clear like what the, the next thing is. Collectively, we in crypto, we're building the next thing. And, and the next thing is open systems that are transparent that anybody can contribute to rather than slaving your life for a company that is going to own the things that you create. You actually own your work. You can take it with you wherever you want. You can, um, you know, reuse it. You can collaborate with others. And that's the direction things are going. You know, I think there's, uh, you know, one place where you can see this kind of thing pretty clearly is uh, like GitHub, which is is pretty cool. You know, there's like open source developers that like you can see like, you know, you know, I don't have to sell you on what I can do. You just, you know, check out my GitHub. You can see my work. Right. And I think like that model of working is going to become a lot more prevalent. But even then you're kind of you know, you've done that work and it's in a sense, it's like owned by like GitHub, the corporation. And if they wanted to just like force people to to pay in order to like, you know, view view their like resumes or like whatever kind of thing they want to do, like that company has complete control over that. And really what we need is to have like self-sovereign control over our data and our reputations and our identities and our work. And that's something that crypto really uniquely enables. So once you have that ability that it's, you know, an identity that you control, work that you can take with you and reputation, then you, you basically see how like everything has to be rebuilt, right? Because nothing works that way today, right? It's all being run on these like centralized services that are controlled by corporations. And so um, we just kind of have to rebuild everything. 
Yeah. And then when we're thinking about onboarding the masses to Web3, I think there's a couple of different approaches, at least like out of the people I've talked to, you have the hardcore decentralized people that are like, everything has to be 100% decentralized to match the whole ethos of Web3. You know, another group of people are like, well, we can have these projects and protocols that are partially centralized, partially decentralized as a way to maybe make it more you know, easily understandable or digestible to the masses that are more used to the centralized system. Some companies that come to mind, like Nifty Gateway or like Coinbase, people argue aren't actually decentralized, even though they're trying to make the push towards this decentralized world. So I, I'm just wondering where you stand on that. Like, do you see it as a good thing to, you know, just create a partially centralized, partially decentralized project to onboard the masses? Or are you sort of like, we have to adhere to the full ethos of Web3? I don't think that that's the way at all. You're only as strong as your weakest link. And once you introduce these, you know, central points of control and a failure, like those become the weakest link and you're kind of stuck. I do think that this is kind of a nuanced issue because like even the graph started with a hosted service, right? And so maybe, you know, if, if you're just kind of looking at this, you're like, Hey, what's the difference? And, and the difference is that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of you think of it as like building the foundation for like modern civilization, right? Like, you know, we're in the Internet age. It's all information. And like these protocols and all of this stuff, it's like the foundation that everything is built upon. And so it needs to be a stable foundation. Now, it's a tremendous amount of work. Like what an undertaking, right? Like, we're, OK, so we're building all of the new infrastructure for like the Internet age for for, you know, the next, you know, several hundred years, that's not going to happen overnight. And so there are practical reasons why, like, you can't snap your fingers and everything's done. Um, it takes time. I think we have to be really clear about what it is that we're building and where it is that we're going. And so, you know, if, you know, you take something like the graph, right, and you know, okay, we're going to organize all of the world's public information in a decentralized way. It's going to be fully decentralized. It has to be decentralized, right? The any developer can build a subgraph, any curator can come help and organize, you know, that data, any indexer can come and like run the servers, everything is going to be decentralized, but maybe it's going to take, you know, two to three years to get there. And so having steps along the way in different milestones to like validate different aspects of the design, I think is actually really important from like from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Um, you know, it's just too risky to kind of like, you know, go away in a closed room and come out like three years or five years later and like hope that you built the perfect thing. So there's there's very real practical reasons why I think the progressive decentralization thing actually makes sense. But it is something that you have to think about from the very beginning, right? And if we didn't know where we were going, we never would have been able to launch the network because there were design decisions that we made from day one that were constraints, right? That that definitely like made things harder, but we knew that they were important because we knew that the whole reason we were doing this is to build something that is fully decentralized. I think that's that's the way that we should be looking at this stuff. So So products that try to like abstract the complexity away, let's say in, in a sense, you know, if they do that with centralization, I think it's short-sighted because, you know, we're basically saying, let's not solve the real problem, which is how to make the decentralized thing usable. And instead let's try to like build a business or something around something that is basically a weak link. 
And I just don't think that's going to stand the test of time. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. So this uh, final section you need before we close out, I call this explain your tweet. This is where I dig through your Twitter and pull out some interesting or cryptic tweets and give you a chance to explain them. Uh, I I just have one tweet for you here today in the interest of time. I know we're running up uh, on the hour. So this tweet that I pulled is from March 26th, 2021. You said the future is decentralized. It's just not evenly distributed yet. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I guess it was a play on like the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed, but also just making the case that the future is decentralized. And also it's a play on the kind of decentralized versus distributed, right? Um, Where, you know, decentralized in a sense is kind of like an architecture, uh, but like distributed actually tells you like how many different, uh, like how even is the distribution and so it was a it was a play on those words as well. Got it, got it. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then also where they can go to learn more about the graph. Uh, yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Yaniv Graph. We are um, at Graph Protocol on Twitter, and also um, the initial team that built the graph is now called Edge and Node. So you can find us at Edge and Node on Twitter and uh, you can sign up to our mailing list. You can jump in the Discord. Um, we've got a really vibrant uh, community. If you're a builder in the space, there is a grants program that you can find uh, if you go to the graph.foundation and you can apply for grants. There's, you know, we, we need all kinds of skills. Anyone that really wants to contribute to this vision of the graph, we'd love to see you uh, any of those places. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Eve. Thank you, Matt, for co-hosting with me. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.